Hi, this is Chris D. from the Flesh Eaters, and you're listening to Deeper Digs in Rock. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, diggers. Welcome to another edition of Deeper Digs in Rock. Christian Swain here. I am the rock and roll archaeologist, or at least that's what I call myself. Well, okay, other people call me that too, so maybe I really am. Huh. Maybe I should get a tattoo or something. Uh, Yes, I am behind the mic in San Francisco today, back at home. Uh, Hello to our old diggers uh, and hello to our new diggers on the Osiris Network. Uh, If those of you who don't know um, uh, old diggers, Osiris is a podcast community um, that we are a part of. And you should check them out. Uh, Go to OsirisPod.com to see what they got in store. And those of you over at the Osiris uh, uh, camp, uh, yeah, you might take a look at Pantheon podcasts and see uh, some of the shows that we have over here uh, in the uh, the rock and roll world. So lots of uh, content for everybody. Um, I want to, again, thank everybody who's engaged in the conversation. Uh, we actually are, are making our, our first call out uh, to a digger for correcting uh, something uh, in an upcoming rock and roll librarian episode. So, uh, Devoren Pavlika, thank you very much for correcting us on the Bruce Springsteen episode. It has been noted that was very nice. Uh, sounds like uh, some of you are also leaving comments uh, uh, a lot on social. Uh, that's really nice. We're seeing lots of uh, engagement there. Uh, and, um, you know, if you, if you got a moment, uh, please uh, go to uh, iTunes or wherever you're listening to your wonderful, great podcast and give us a review. You can do it right now. You can grab that phone, pick it up. Okay, come on. Uh the, you got the the button the the thumb you know put it put okay there we go all right great great open the podcast app oh hey look it was already open that's amazing uh and you can at least give us you know a five-star review or hey whatever you think is is appropriate and then uh you know uh write up a a, a nice little um wow these guys are awesome or uh, you know, I, I don't know if I completely agree with everything uh, they say, but I like listening to it. I don't know, whatever you want to say, that sort of thing. So, okay, okay, let's get to the news. Uh, again, I want to remind everybody, Pamela DeBar is on Pantheon Podcast with a new show. Uh, it is Miss Pamela's Pajama Party. Please let us know what you think. There's only one episode out right now, but there will be a new episode launching in the next couple of days, Okay. We already got it teed up, and Pamela told me today what the next guest is going to be, and uh, it's uh, it's getting to be a big one. So, so um, uh, I look forward to uh, to hearing this. Um, I really enjoyed the first episode, and and I, I've I've heard the second episode, and it's really great as well. So, um, but you you'll you'll get it in a couple of days. All right, and um, of course, uh, episode seventeen. Yes, yes, we hear it all the time. When is it coming? I know it shouldn't take this long. 
it kind of got stuck in a lot of different things. Uh, you know, some of it was the Christmas break, and and then um, uh, a lot of other uh, production pieces got in the way. Uh, vacations. There was always there was always something. It just it it should not have taken this long. But it is a great one. It is a double episode. Um, I'd say, uh, in fact, I know for sure it it is going to launch. Uh, definitely uh, the week of the fourteenth. Uh, so hold on, it's it's almost there, uh, and uh, uh, I think you guys are going to be uh, blown away uh, by it. It's called Bookends, uh, and um, uh, it, it's about the New York music scene of the late nineteen sixties, uh, like I told you last week. And uh, you know, it uh, of course it had to be big because it's about New York. Um, it is uh, a bit about, um, you know, a very, very professionalized side of the music scene and then the nitty-gritty, dirty side of, uh, of, of the music scene as well, uh, along with a couple of interesting sides and some good commentary as we're getting close to the end of the, the 60s here. Um, we've got a few more episodes to, to talk about uh, that. In fact, I think we really only have two more after this that we have planned of the 1960s and then we're moving into the 1970s. We're very excited about that. And just so you know, we are already working on episode 18. It's mapped out pretty nicely. Um, most of the research is done, and uh, we've uh, already lined up some special guests. In fact, we've already had a couple of uh, great interviews uh, for that. So hopefully that will come quicker. And I know I say that every time, but I really mean it this time. Okay, I really do. Um, there will be a new rock and roll librarian in a week or so. Uh, this time, Shelly and I dive into the recently departed diva of all divas, Aretha Franklin. Uh, in it, we try to focus on just how amazing, um, <laughs> even that is an understatement, and musically diverse uh, Aretha was. The Reverend Andy King is serving up Hell's Bells as the next real rock, a horror movie specifically for white evangelical American Jesus lovers. Now, I, I, ha I hate to use the term Christian with these folks. Anyway, Andy has a good time both ripping the movie to shreds, uh, but also illuminating how music and faith can and should coexist. Uh, to be honest, I think these two episodes work really well together. Kind of a, a yin-yang of music and faith. Uh, the rock and roll librarian and, let's face it, um, Aretha Franklin, coming out of the gospel tradition, uh, always had a uh, strain of uh, that DNA uh, in all of her music in a great way, in a positive way. You, 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 you cannot say anything negative about that. Uh, and then, uh, you know, this movie where, you know, it's just basically moral panic uh, on parade. Usually uh, because, you know, uh, someone can't control their own inner emotions about something and then they think that nobody else should get a chance to be a part of it as well. So anyway, Andy will tell you all about that uh, and uh, with Hell's Bells and uh, uh, Shelly and I will tell you everything about Aretha. It's going to be great. And it's both of them are fantastic. Uh, so keep an eye out for that and uh, all the great stuff coming from Pantheon Podcasts. And uh, uh, please, uh, as always. Tell a friend. Okay, diggers, that is the housekeeping this week. So, you know, why don't we get to the show and meet our special guests today? 
So today, we have our first returning guest, Randy Bachman. Last year, we spoke with him about his then-new album, By George, By Bachman, a collection of George Harrison songs reimagined by Randy and his band. If you haven't listened to that interview, please do, uh, but not doing so won't create confusion today. Also joining us is filmmaker John Barnard. Uh, Both of them are going to discuss the new documentary on Randy, simply called Bachman, and it was just released on March 26, uh, 2019. It was really awesome having them both on to discuss the new film. As you know, Randy is a very interesting guy in rock and roll history. Two bands with several top ten hits and a number one in each. Uh, American Woman uh, from the Guess Who and You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet from BTO. Let me tell you, that is incredibly impressive and almost unheard of in rock music. Randy's now 75 and, you know, let's face it, is a musical icon. So it's no wonder a documentary would be done on him. John Bernard certainly seems to be the guy to do it. Uh, He's worked with Randy before and has other music documentaries on his credits. We spend a lot of time going through the film, a a lot of the whys and hows, of course, uh, what is in it, including other musical heroes inspired by this prodigal son of Winnipeg, uh, people like Neil Young, Paul Schaefer, Alex Lifeson, Peter Frampton, Fred Turner, and also what is not in it, um, like Burton Cummings and Backman's uh, brothers Robbie and Tim. Uh, And let me say, sometimes it's a little disconcerting discussing a legend uh, in the third person, when the legend in question is right there listening to you. Uh, all good fun. Uh, and, of course, I, I fucked up the name of last year's By George, By Backman album title. But, uh, Randy, uh, like all good Canadians, uh, politely corrects me. So let's get to the discussion and the new documentary, Backman. Diggers, I give you Randy Backman and John Bernard. <laughs> Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, uh, John Barnard, and well, welcome back, Randy Backman. Hi, good to be here. Nice to be 
Yeah, so you guys have a new movie out. Uh, uh, John, you uh, directed uh, the, uh, the what is now the official film uh, biography uh, called Bachman. Um, but Randy, I, I, my, my first question is, you know, what is the essence you lost that your son Tal mentions with one of the opening lines? I don't know. Go to ask Tal. <laughs> he seems to to say that maybe, you know, after Bachman Turner Overdrive kind of uh, ran its course, you left the band, that you kind of wandered uh, around a, a bit and it took you a while to, to kind of get your mojo back. Well, I think that happens after every project. I think it happens to every actor after every movie. When they become somebody, the movie's over, your life ends, you are what's called unemployed until the phone rings, you get another acting gig. And I'm the same way between albums. You wonder, what should I do next? What will work? What won't work? What's my passion? I don't care if this sells or not. I want to do it anyways. And you just kind of wander around till something, or you go fishing until you get a big bite, and then you go to the same fishing hole over and over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I see that the you know the the, the movies you know uh, like most good movies bro- broken into into three acts. You know uh, the the first act is uh, uh, you know your upbringing and then into uh, the guess who. The second act into uh, uh, BTO, uh, and we'll talk about that. And then and then there's like a a long third act, um, which I, I found interesting. But before we go that far, um, I got to ask: Is the love of your life a guitar? Always. It, it really <laughs> comes across that that's, I mean, I, I think the happiest you appear is when you're in that warehouse with all those guitars. Yeah, because I've, I've broken hearts. I've had my heart broken. Uh, and whenever that happens, the thing I hold right next to me on my chest is a guitar. Guitar is the most intimate instrument there is. You hold it against your chest. It, you breathe, you breathe into the guitar, your heart beats into the guitar, you wrap your arms around it, and you pour your guts out into it. And whether people hear that or not, it's very cathartic. And sometimes you record it, and it becomes uh, a really great record that resonates around the world. But everybody has these feelings. And um, and, and that's kind of like the, the guitar is my love and my drug, so to speak, because uh, it's always there. And I have enough of them all over the place. That wherever I turn, there's a guitar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I, how many uh, in the collection today? How many pairs of shoes do you have? <laughs> I, I, I'm sure you have more guitars than I have shoes. Well, I always, if it's a woman who asks me that question, then I say that. She says, okay, I know what you're saying. Uh, right. I, I, I honestly don't know how many guitars I have. You I don't, don't know. You don't, you actually don't know the number. I've never known how many I have. I mean, I, hey, I, I read that you, you, you just donated 385 guitars to the Gretsch collection. Yeah, I sold them. I didn't donate them. I don't donate anything. <laughs> That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. So, so John, you know, why did you want to make a documentary on Randy? Well, I, I think your lead-in is perfect um, because. Right away with Randy, I saw that his heart was in something in the way that my heart's in something, you know, that he was obsessed with what he did the way I am obsessed with filmmaking. Um, It's just like playing the guitar um, in lots of ways, actually, because I play the guitar now. And, um, you know, when you're doing it, it's 
you're alone with the movie. As, as many people are helping you, it's really a lonely process. You're kind of doing it on your own. Um, and um, Yeah, as a director, all the responsibility is on your shoulders. Um, uh, yeah, especially with, with, with documentaries because uh, it, it's so post-centric, you know, because so much of it comes to, together in the edit. Yeah. Um, it, it really, I mean, there's people along the way with you, but, but it, it, it's sort of just you and the movie. Um, and and I think I would venture to say that maybe that's a little bit how you feel when you're brokenhearted and sitting there with your guitar. Um, I, it, 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 it lives and breathes with you in the same way. Um, and you, the obsession that I have with it is something that I latched onto with him right away. It was really clear to me that we had the same thing in common. Interesting. Yeah. So you, uh, as an artist, uh, a, a filmmaking artist, uh, in the same way, like Randy explained, uh, going between the projects and, uh, you know, it's the same way with film. I mean, you, you, you know, you, you, you're, you're together for a period of time. I guess uh, the next question would be, you know, how long did it take to get this done? I mean, how long was it in process? Uh, well, it started in uh, the spring of 2013 when I did a uh, concert film for Randy. I directed a, a show when he came back to Winnipeg. Uh, uh, yeah, well, Randy, and, and, and let, me, let me stop you just for a second, John, and just make sure the diggers understand that, you know, this this is like a, a, a home movie because, you know, Randy's from Winnipeg and you're also from Winnipeg. Right. That's an important, uh, I think, connection to <laughs> everything here is sort of starts in Winnipeg, including this movie. Mm -hmm. um, he, did, he did a show in Winnipeg in 2013, and I, I made a, a, a small concert film out of it. Um, it did pretty well, and I think it turned out pretty well. And that, that got everybody thinking about, you know, what, what, what was the next step and what else we could do. Um, and I, I think it was really Randy's manager, Jill, who, who said, you know, it, it's sort of the next the next step would be a big life documentary about Randy. So let's propose it. Let's let's try, try to get the, 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 the wheels turning on it. Um, and that's what I did. I, I wrote a proposal for it. Um, and I, just because the way things ebb and flow in. Uh, and because it's based mostly in television, uh, the, the industry for this, um, it took took about three years for it to sort of find its feet and and for someone to start throwing a little bit of money at it. Um, but once once it happened, it happened real fast. Um, and I, I started really seriously working on it around the summer of 2016. Um, in, in the research and development phase. And then I went, I went on to uh, shooting almost all, for all of 2017. So it was, it was a, a full year of actual production. And I would say before that, maybe three years of just kind of getting ready and lining up my ducks beforehand. Yeah, it seems like a, a lot of the filming centered around, uh, you know, Randy's uh, last album, uh, Between Two Mountains. Uh, that uh, that kind of was the centerpiece of uh, of the of the film. Is that about right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, as it happened, uh, he was making this record at the same time that we were shooting, and it's nice to have a. A contemporary kind of foot in the ground. Yeah. Uh, especially when you're when you're when you're doing history stuff, and it was clear from the beginning that there'd be a large sort of archival and historic uh, piece to this this story. 
place to have um, for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, the first of which is is just sometimes the, the legacy visuals don't don't go as far as you, you need them to. And even with Randy, where there's a ton, <laughs> al- al- yeah, almost endless, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, an embarrassment of riches uh, of incredible photographs. It's, it's almost like he's a magnet for incredible photographers to, to follow him by, for the last six decades. Um, and, uh, but, but, but beyond that, it, it's, it, it's nice to stretch it a little further by bleeding over the present day into the past and to, and to uh, not just illustrate that, uh, you know, he's, he's still as passionate about this as he always was, but, and by, but, but, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but but to, but to show that in in a lot of ways, um, the world, uh, some in some ways doesn't change either. You know, you, you know, what a musician still does is 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 dream of songs and then go into the studio and then and then go play them live. Uh, you, you know, this cycle continues, and you know, in a lot of ways, he the same thing was happening in 1962 as it was in. 2017. Oh, I'm. Sh- I I think it would be fair, and we should ask Randy if the same thing was happening in the in the 1500s. I mean, traveling minstrel <laughs> is traveling minstrel, right? Yeah, yeah, my life is my life is one big Groundhog Day. <laughs> <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like Bill Murray with a guitar. Bill Murray with a guitar. I mean, every day is kind of. A- <laughs> yeah, wake up uh, with it, it, but like you said that that. that that uh, passionate uh, instrument is with you uh, wherever you go, but you may not know what city you're in, right? Right. That's, uh, that's amazing. Now, now, John, this is not your first music documentary. You actually have done one before called The Sheepdog, uh, the Sheepdogs Have It, right? Yeah, The Sheepdogs Have At It, yeah. And uh, what did you learn from that experience, and how did that translate to this project? Um, I, I mean, in a lot of ways, uh, the, the formula is very similar. Um, you know, some guys are going in to make a record. Um, we, we, we learn about what happened to them in the past and how they rose you know, to, to infamy. Um, in, in the case of them, it was, you know, a, a five or ten year backstory. Uh, with Randy, there was quite a bit more. Um, and and uh, I learned that at the beginning, I was trying to, I guess, resist the formula a little bit. You know, how come every rock and roll movie has to have like a scene in the studio um, and a scene, you know, you know, where they explain what their music means? To, but that's what it is. That's yeah. the essence of what it is, right? Um, but, but um, with there are thousands people- and thousands of music documentaries, and we're all still trying to figure out the key. Uh, of you know what what is what what's that magic ingredient or what are those magic ingredients and you know to your point you know yeah somewhere it's in the studio and on the stage and you know all the preparation the hard work the luck and so on and so forth and you know they're just told in various manners right yeah and I'd say that the magical ingredient in this case may be wisdom um, not mine but the subjects. Um, for instance, when I was in the studio with Randy, um, most of what they recorded, um, most of the tracking they did, most of the little pieces they picked up even here and there were usually captured on the first or second take. Um, when Randy (laughs) makes this record, when the George Harrison record that he just finished, we're talking about, um, 
it's, you, most of it was done immediately and perfectly the first time. Um, whereas my, my previous experiences with other musicians, not just that last documentary, but the other ones, it, I, I, it was take 10 or 12 um, that, that usually happened. And um, it's, no, it's no accident. It's not because Randy's cutting corners. It's because no, it's it's sixty years of of of, yeah. of work. It's two huge bands. It's uh, you know two number one hits from two different bands. It's making it to the top twice. I mean, yes, there's a lot of things that a lot of other musicians don't have behind them. And I'm sorry, Randy, we're talking behind your back here. <laughs> Can I correct you on two things, please? Uh, the album was called "By George." The oh, first that's song right. is the the, the first song, song is between two mountains. Right. Yeah, the first song between two mountains that I wrote thinking, what would George be like between Mount Leonard and Mount McCartney? And um, I forget what I was going to correct. Oh, I've had three number ones. Um, American Woman was a double A side with No Sugar Tonight, which I wrote alone. That's right. And then that album, number one, and then You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet. Okay, I'm done. That's why we have you here, is to make sure you correct the record for us. Oh, okay. So, so um, uh, great. John, go on. Um, right. So, so what happens is you have this formula of stuff that works and you, you put other people into it and into a different situation. Um, and it's the personalities that make it different. And it's the personalities that, that make it shine or make it work. Uh, yeah. And this is a unique, um, personality and, and, and something I want to dive into is you mentioned wisdom. I, I might throw in spirituality. Um, Speaking to you last year, Randy, I was struck by your story of a, a presence you felt while making your George Harrison tribute album by George and writing the song Between Two Mountains. You, you told me about waking up in the, in the middle of the night, and I understood a bit of your spirituality in that, in that conversation. There are several moments of spirituality in this film that tell us something deeper about you, so I want to ask about what, what I think might be the first piece, and I, I might be wrong, but I'm going to throw it at you, and that's, I didn't know you were born a twin and you lost your sibling. Yeah, same as Elvis. Yeah. Yeah. How, how do you think that made you who you are and who you became? I've always felt a, uh, a presence with me. Uh, I think maybe, and my twin was going to be Andrew, so it's going to be Randy and Andy. I always feel that Andy is kind of there. Uh -huh. uh, I've never felt alone. Even when I'm alone, I'm not alone. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'm never like pining that I'm alone. I'm always with somebody. I felt like um, a lot of people be believe they have a guardian angel. I know my guardian angel. It's my twin. You certainly okay? do. Your guardian angel actually has a name. Yes. And a lot of times I talk to him. I say, Randy, uh, Andy, can you believe this? Here we are. We're on the stage with Neil Young, and we're here at this in Nashville. Or I'm here in New York City, and... We're doing the documentary, and I'm going to talk about you in the documentary, you know, that kind of thing. So you feel this, this presence, your twin, Andy, uh, just resides with you wherever you go. I've kind of felt that way, yeah. Uh, it's And that I, way from, from very young? Yeah, I don't want to be voodoo-y or... No, you know, no, no, I mean, no, 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 no. Like I said, there is this element of spirituality that comes through this, and we'll, we'll talk about a couple other things that, uh, that I picked I, up from the movie. I think but. everybody in their life has felt a time when they were guarded by angels. Some dangerous thing happens, yeah. and somehow you're pushed out of the way, or it doesn't happen, 
or some miracle happens or or you lose your car keys and you find them at the right moment. I mean, some are little things, some are big things, but you feel there's something besides you in your life. And um, like I said, I've always felt that. And when I was doing this George Harrison album, a lot of times we're in the middle of the night where it's quiet and it's dark, and I go into my room and I get a George song, and I'm trying to do it justice as a songwriter to a songwriter and not copy what George and the Beatles did, and try to find a new groove for it, and going through thousands of loops on GarageBand and trying to get a drum beat and try to print out his lyrics and look at the lyrics and try to get maybe a new chord or two and substitute it and, and do to it what, like, what Lenny Kravitz did to American Woman or Junior Walker did to These Eyes. Just make it your own but honor the song. And then I would come up with these things, and I would feel almost like somebody in the room nodding, yeah, that's pretty good. And then when I wrote Between Two Mountains, it was like, somebody guiding my hands to write those lyrics. So those are not my lyrics. The like, there's an inner light, just let it shine. That's all George Harrison lyrics. And, and at the end, when I do Harry Krishna, I would never put that in the song, but it's in the end of Between Two Mountains. And every time I do that on stage, I tear up. I mean, literally every single time. And the audience does as well. It's like, it's a real nod to George Harrison. And, and, and both him and John Lennon really went beyond their career being a Beatle and and put their careers on the line and preached, you know, give peace a chance. Love is all you need. Love is everywhere. Love is the answer. And that's what I keep saying over and over in that in that song and in the whole, the the whole album is just like full of gushing love. And the audience feels it when I play it, and so do I. And it's it's an amazing thing to feel. And it's really something that these guys, like I said, went out on a limb and stopped singing about rock and roll and sang about peace and love and joy and the world being brothers and sisters. Yeah. 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 And, and I know, Randy, that, uh, you know, your, your life turned from black and white to color on the, the, the night you saw the Beatles for the first time. I think it was on Ed Sullivan, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so I, I like many of us, you know, uh, you know, uh, the alpha and omega of, uh, you know, this thing we call rock and roll begins and ends with the Beatles. Uh, so that that's no surprise. But you feel this presence that, you know, kind of follows you around uh, and helps you uh, achieve these uh, these sort of esoteric goals, which is, you know, making art. Yeah. I've heard many people say a little voice whispers in your ear. I don't know how loud that voice is for most people, but for me, it's kind of always there and I can even talk back to it. And it's okay these days because everybody's talking <laughs> on their iPhone. In the old days, you'd see a guy in the street, he'd be mumbling to himself and you go, oh, that guy's shell-shocked or something's wrong with him. Right, now, right, everybody's, right. now everybody's talking to themselves uh, and laughing. You know, I, I was, I was, I did, I did a CBC a noon show uh, two days ago in LA. So I was on at noon, and right across the street from CBS is a Trader Joe's. So I went in there, and and I see Janet Jackson, and she's in disguise, but I know what she looks like without makeup and a baseball hat on her ponytail. And she's shopping in there, and she's going, "Hey, how are you?" And I think, I think she's talking to me, but she's got these oh, earbuds. in your inner, oh, the earbuds, uh, the earbuds, yeah, I right. right, right. And I, I talk to her. I ask her back, and she walks right by me without even seeing that I'm alive. But that's, but that's the kind of thing that happens. Right, right. 
Uh, John, so there, there are a lot of great moments with famous fans, uh, most notably Neil Young and Alex Lifeson of Rush, who, besides Randy uh, and Molson, are probably the greatest Canadian imports. Um, now, Randy, I know you're very close to Neil. Uh, you practically grew up together. Um, but um, there were some important missing characters, and, and I have to ask, notably uh, Randy, your brothers, Robbie and Tim, uh, Blair Thornton from BTO, and Burton Cummings from the Guess Who. Why didn't they make it in the film? And I, I, I pose this question to both of you. Uh, I think, um, well, John has to answer that because I wasn't part of pulling these guys together. John did it all. Right. And some of them were not available. Some were asked and were not available. And literally, John did an amazing job of traveling the whole world and getting people in Nashville and England and L.A. and everywhere he went. And uh, it's very hard to get everybody together with their schedule. And I don't know, that's what all I can say. The, the rest is up to John. Yeah, yeah, we tried, you know. Um, uh, Burton said yes. Um, I, if you see him, ask him for me. Okay, so you know. tried, <laughs> you, you got the, the okay, but it just never really happened. Yeah, wish I knew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because Fred Turner's in there, so, uh, you know, w w with some great insights uh, in there and uh, would have loved to uh, uh, have heard uh, what Burton had to say because, mm. you know, there are those voices that fit Randy's guitar, you know, so incredibly well. Um, uh, yeah. you know, it's just, it's, it, it was just to, to me, I was like, you know, oh man, that would have been cool. But you know, that's just not the way these things work sometimes. So, uh, so I, so I get it. So John, okay, like, unfortunately not. yeah, I think, I think if John had another year and, and the, then the doc would be two hours long, we could have got those guys in. It was just a matter of getting them at the right time and place because John had a crew and he had to get people all over the world. We have yeah. to get these guys. He can't fly around the world, helter-skelter, without a definite uh, okay from these guys. And even Neil Young was still, and when he wanted to do it, that took four or five days of like waiting for him to feel in the groove and to call and say, okay, turn, turn on the camera. See what I mean? It, <laughs> right. it takes a while. Yeah. I, I have to say, it, it, in a lot of ways, it was a roll of the dice. Um, uh, Neil did take uh, a, a few, sort of a few months uh, to line up of everybody being in the same place at the same time. It, uh, it, it took a lot of sort of bureaucratic work, but but then it, it took me a couple of days of just waiting around in a city, you know, for him to be available. It's the only time I've ever done it in a production where I stopped and held a crew waiting in a city. Waiting for the phone uh, to ring. Right? <laughs> yeah, uh, like paying a hotel bill. It's the, 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 maybe the only time I'll ever do it in, in, again. Too, um, uh, but but then you know some of them were incredibly easy as well. Um, Alex Lifeson <clears throat> from Rush, uh, he walked off a stage from a sound check right up to me, and I shook his hand, introduced myself, uh, you know, saying you know would you be willing someday to do this interview for the film? It would mean a lot, and he said. Bah, let's do it right now. Wow, <laughs> so, really? Like, just like yeah, that? Go, Turn the lights yeah, on. So, right. Yeah, well, we, uh, great. Come with me. Uh, as it happened, I was prepared for it, so I dragged him down into the basement where we're all set up, and we did it right there. Um, it, 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 you never know, right? Um, it, some of these guys were princes, like princes. Uh, Frampton, my God, like... I, 
I've never felt more welcomed while while you know interviewing you know you know someone who he didn't he didn't have to do that for me but well he he did it for Randy I know that's yeah yeah but, but, yeah. but, but he didn't he didn't have to go to all the work he did mm-hmm. to make you know to, to 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 do this for me but but he did um so I don't know sometimes you win and sometimes you don't win yeah, so like like most great stories, the film is made up of three acts. Uh, you know, it's obvious Randy's life can be split between the first act of the Guess Who and the second act of BTO, but the third act really has no ending, so it's kind of more a work in progress. Yeah, yeah. What is what is the third act? I think that I think I think that somebody actually says that in the movie. What's the third act? Yeah, what is the third act? I mean, it's well, I, it's not, I mean, it's not I, definitive, I should say. Uh, and here we are, here we are talking to, uh, behind Randy's back again. Um, but it, it's not definitive. It's it's I, it's like a it's like a lot of things. Yeah, well, uh, but also it's still it's still in progress. I could keep making third acts. Yeah. I, could probably I can't wait. I can't wait for the director's cut. The movie. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I think he's, you know, I think I've got like this sort of this thing wrapped up, he would start doing something else, you know? So yeah. And, and like something everything. off the wall. I mean, that, that, that <laughs> album last year is really, when I dove into it, you know, it, it would be so easy for, you know, people to, you know, Randy to kind of throw down a standard um, cover version of uh, of these great George Harrison songs. It was a great theme, great idea. Um, but he literally, like, completely changes the songs. I, uh, and, and, and he, as he says in the in the um, in the movie and how I explained it to to people when I would tell them you got to listen to this album you won't know what the song is until he starts singing which is yeah. you know what he did there which is really just off the wall and really um highly creative yeah no and and it's, it was certainly it was helpful for me in terms of music licensing right because essentially i was able to use randy's creation yeah. in the songs in the movie right the, the, when we're in the studio and hearing him do those songs you know he it's really his. Like that part's his. Yeah. Um, that yeah. we use. And that, yeah. Boy, even even though you are bumping up against the, uh, you know, the Beatles there. So I get, yeah. I get on the licensing <laughs> side. Right. 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 So, Randy, um, I got to know what's the first book you read? See Dick Run. See Jane Run. See Spot. <laughs> the first book fun. that meant something to you. And I'm going to be disappointed uh, would, if you say, see Dick J- run and see Dick James. I was, I was going to say that again to be funny, but um, <laughs> um, I was unpacking because I just moved to Victoria, B.C., and it's wonderful there compared to Winnipeg, where it's just freezola most of the year. Yeah. So I, I'm unpacking stuff, and stuff's been packed. Some of my stuff's been packed for years, and I find a book that I used to read when I was, I don't know, 10 or 11 or 12, and I read it, I don't know, maybe three times back to back, you know, cover to cover, cover to cover, over and over again. And it's, a, it's from England. It's the collected works of H.G. Wells. Oh, yeah. Okay. I read that over and over and over. And that, you know, that's the time machine. Yeah. And War of like the Worlds. That, and, uh, yeah. The original stuff that as a kid, mm-hmm. it's all in the theater of your mind. You're reading these words and you're creating the time machine and all that kind of stuff and, and going around the world and all that kind of stuff. And then after that, it was Ray Bradbury. Kind of, I kind of like sci-fi like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I like to get the collected works. And just read how this, almost like buying my catalog and listening or watching this documentary, where the guy came from, what he did, and what he did in his peak years, and how he kind of 
maybe lost energy or steam or repeated himself. And then up came another brilliant moment where he wrote another book or somebody murdered, made it into a movie. So my, the, the first things I read that I still like to read over and over again are these sci-fi collections. Ah, oh, makes perfect sense. Make per- perfect sense. And also now, now it totally explains why Alex Lyson from Rush is in there. He, uh, you know, there's a famous story from uh, from Gene Simmons uh, of Kiss that you know uh, that Rush is on uh, one of their early tours, and you know they're partying like animals, and they go knock on the door of the guys from Rush, and they're still in their hotel rooms reading. You know, so he makes a point of how boring they are. So uh, there, 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 there is a, there is some commonality there. So what are, what are you reading now, Randy? Uh, I've read for the last zillion years bios and auto bios because I know all these people, but to read where they came from. Rock and roll uh, bios. Yeah, yeah. Chuck Berry. Um, somebody just gave me Motley Crue. I, oh, I, the dirt, I read, right, right. Yeah, the, the Clapton thing. I read yeah. everybody's bios and where they came from. Uh-huh. And it's great to read a couple of them because if you read the you read the Donald Trump ones, there's two different ones. Or Richard Branson, if one's written by a disgruntled employee or someone who was fired, you're going to get that side of Richard Branson. If it's written by his son or somebody who really likes him, you're going to get the other side. So I read I read them all and kind of take it all in because I, I I run into these people. Many stewardesses have said to me. Uh, are your initials RB? And I go, yes. Well, we read your book. Oh, cool. And I think they read my book. And they sit down. You're, you're amazing, Mr. Branson. I think I'm right, a- Richard Branson. <laughs> yes, honey, I'll take you to my island. Yeah, I've got an airplane. Why am I on Air Canada if I own an airplane? <laughs> All right, I I I, I want to pose a theory about Canadian music and its place in the pantheon of rock and roll, and why it's a bit different and and perhaps successful. Uh, so bear with me here. I, I think I already found one element, Randy, when we discussed last year that the great distances between gigs and the weather that had to be endured was like a great filter. Only the best and the hardest could survive, right? Correct. Okay, so here's my next piece of the puzzle. Canada is smack in the middle of American and British music of the times. I mean, let's face it, your big unruly brother is to the south. You can't escape that. Um, But your loyalties, you Canadians, lay more towards the Queen's English. What do you think? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, um, every band in Winnipeg, could hear what was coming over the border, especially at night with old AM radio. We were listening to WLS in Chicago. Um, we would listen to New Orleans, WNOS in New Orleans, and get all this music. And so every band had the same access. We had cousins in England that would send us old 45s, or they would tape on old reel-to-reel 10 or 12 or 20 45 singles that were all theirs and their friends and send it to us, and we would get this incredible music from England. That's what made... Uh, my first band, the Guess Who, Chad Allen, Expressions, different than everybody else. And then Neil Young found out about that. And he started to get Cliff Richard in the shadows and all this stuff. So we were different than anybody else who were, were playing, you know, what was America. We still played American stuff uh, because you got to play the hit parade when you're playing high school dances. But we always had this edge of, um, of, of cool British stuff that was already proven to be hits because they were hits in England, just that they, they got no airplay in Canada or the U.S., 
Wow. Okay. So you you guys were special in the sense that you know, uh, especially the that first iteration of the Guess Who, uh, Chad Allen, the expression that y- you <clears throat> you took you know the American music that you had to know, uh, just because that was the expectation, and then your secret sauce were were these early British bands before the invasion, right? Yes. Hence our name. We were originally Allen and the Silvertones. We were so in love with Cliff Richard and the Shadows. Yeah. Chad and Jeremy came out. Alan changed his name to Chad Allen. And Reflections is like a shadow. So we were like Cliff Richard and the Shadows. We did every Cliff Richard and Shadows song for, for years and years and years. And then we got Johnny Kidd and the Pirates shaking all over, which was great. And we recorded that. And that, then we became the Guess Who. And that was our first hit record. Yeah, okay. So I'm not too far off. Uh, but it, it, it's really more specific to what you were doing and and the the uh, the the fact that you guys were cognizant of this and you intentionally put it into your music of this middle ground between american and british music right yes we always, I always preferred the shadows as as compared to the ventures oh yeah okay you know what i mean the, yeah. the ventures were, the ventures recordings were kind of dirty and uh, distorted and the shadows had this beautiful clean sound cuz they always had a rhythm Acoustic rhythm guitar, the beautiful echoed uh, lead guitar of Hank Marvin, the great drumming, and then when they black back Cliff Richard, it was it was an amazing combination. I was thrilled to go to the 50th anniversary a few years ago at the O2 in London and met them all and I hung hung out with them all. Awesome. And Neil Young, Neil Young was going to come with me, but he had problems with one of his sons who was ill at the time. Uh, but we were going to, and then I but I got Neil to meet them at a later date, and it was like. Um, us, uh, it was like a homecoming to, to meet the, and I went to their sound check, and I was the only guy in the sound check in the Hammersmith Odeon, and they'd done three songs, and then Hank Marvin and Bruce Welsh called me up to stage, and they give me the red guitar and say, do you want to play this? And I'm like, totally stunned. It's like Jimi Hendrix saying, here, do you want to play my white Strat? You yeah, know, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. And so um, I have these great memories, and they're really wonderful, great guys. And again, like I said, it's just the world of guitar players, just sharing a guitar. Nobody's a superstar at that moment. They're all doing a sound check. We're all having dinner together. And whether it's Brian May or, or Hank Marvin and me or, or Neil Young, we're just guitar players, and we all talk guitar talk. Well, yeah, in that certain air, uh, yes, I'm sure you guys all feel that you're just regular humans. Well, we are. We're regular humans who got lucky. We never gave up. We stuck at it. Yeah. If you look at, if you look at our past, the guys who – gave up or, or our fans or our greatest fans though because they admire us because we kept going because literally when you start out in this business the odds are millions against you millions of one yeah that you're going to yep. make a record or that the band's going to stay together more than a month or a year and then when you do get together what are the odds that you're going to stay together four or five years somebody passes away somebody gets married uh, somebody has a change of heart uh all kind of things happen and so it's amazing to look back and uh see who's still standing. The four voices from Winnipeg are still heard in the world today. Burton Cummings, Fred Turner, me and Neil Young. It's an amazing thing. It is absolutely amazing that uh, the four of you from uh, from Winnipeg are, are still out there, uh, still doing it. Although I think Fred just recently retired and just said, okay, I He no did, but he said, if the day's right, give him a call, he'll come out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, you can never really retire. Uh, once, you know, music's in your blood, you're just, you, you can't ever say no. Uh, no, I, I almost got him to Winnipeg. We played Winnipeg about two weeks ago 
at the big, you know, at the MTS Center where the Jets play. And it was with Leonard Skinner, and I said, but friends in Florida. I said, come on back. All you do is walk on stage, sing five songs, play Not Fragile, sing Let It Ride, Rolling Down the Highway, Blue Collar, play, Place Will Go Nuts. He said, I'd love to, but I'm I'm here till blah, blah, blah. So I, can, I know I can still get him out if the time is right and, and the gig is right. Right, right, right. We'll, we'll, I'm sure we will see Fred Turner on the stage again here. So, yeah. So, John, um, you know, you know, as you as, as you, you mentioned at, at the top, you know, the, the filmmaking process, you know, a, a film is made three times. Uh, it's first in the writing, uh, then in the filming and then most importantly in the editing. So what I what I want to know is, you know, what, what were the most important themes that you felt at the beginning? that kind of stayed with the process all the way to the end? Well, um, I think, you know, there's some themes that, are, that keep coming up in my work again and again. Um, one of them is just the, the relationship that parents have with their kids. Um, uh, from the beginning, it was really clear because Tal was one of the very first people that I interviewed. Um, and I, I'd never done something where it was sort of explored over such a long time. Um, and that was interesting to me. Um, in, in a lot of ways, Tal's kind of been around longer than anybody. I mean, there's a few people who have technically been around a lot longer, like, like Gary, uh, Randy's brother, um, who was also in the movie. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but, but, but Tal's been at the center of things. For a really long time. So because yeah, Tal's in your band, Randy. Yes, and as a kid, he came on tour. He played drums with me and Neil Young in Neil's barn. We were recording some stuff. He was on tour with me and Eddie Van Halen. Uh, like he's been there, and I'd come home from a tour and find my Beatle records all over the living room. And go, who did this? It's Tal. <laughs> I'm going in to tear him apart, and a voice inside my head said, "Leave him alone." He's studying the best band in the world. <laughs> right, right. And just ask him nicely to please put them away <laughs> uh, you know, in their paper jackets and don't leave them on the floor. So I did that, and he respectfully did that. But he studied all the Beatles stuff and, um, and, and, and is a great songwriter and a great singer and a great musician. And in, in my band, he's a great addition. And we still do, we do She's So High on the set. Yeah, and all the top, women in the top hit on his own. Right, right. Yeah, so um, my stuff is not like 30 and 40 years old. He makes it you know, 10 years old when he does his song. You know what I mean? It's like a 10-year-old song, and that's in there. And Leonard Skinner came out every night and said, they love, can they switch set lists with us? I mean, they're joking. <laughs> they have their own good set list. But in 55 minutes, we played 18 hit songs, and it was just <laughs> slam, bam, kick in the face hit songs. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, everyone. Yeah, yeah, I, I know I know what you mean. I know what you mean. So, John, back to the theme. So, so, so it starts with Tal. Yeah. Um, so, you know, parents, uh, you know, parents and their kids is a thing that, yeah, that I'm yeah, really interested yeah, in. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Lor Lorelai's in the in the in the film as well. Yeah. Um, so 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 Tal was one of the first interviews I did. Lorelai was one of the last. And for the for ah. me, the process was sort of was sort of bookmarked with all of them. Like the uh, the whole the whole package is kind of encompassed between their two perspectives. I mean, obviously, there's other perspectives, but uh, but I tried to bracket my perspective with with theirs if that makes sense um and and and, and that's a big thing for me um another theme that is in all my stuff is uh well for lack of a better word um the, the need for selfishness in your own life <laughs> um because I, I i i'm on a quest to figure out you know what 
what what level of me first is necessary in this world? Okay. Um, and 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 I I think you know to when anytime you can do something big or do something like raise a child or record an album or make a film, um, you know the, there's a certain point where, where you have to be happy yourself first before you do any of those other things. Um, it, it makes by making yourself complete, you need. You know, that's the thing that makes the work complete. Um, and, and, and because I need to know for myself to make my own stuff, I want to know how art, other artists do it um, and, and what the balance is and how do you how do you do it? Because I think a certain level of me first is required, um, to be honest. And uh, I, I want to find out what 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 that is and what what sacrifices you have to make to to achieve that what you know what's the answer so so basically there's always a price to pay it is what what is that price yeah yeah but but unfortunately uh, when when you're doing this stuff it's inevitably seen as only thinking about yourself but it's not just yourself it's it's you and the work like you're doing you're doing it for yourself but you're doing it for the thing as well um, and, and for me, the question is, what is the balance of that, and how does that how does it work? I don't know. Hmm. Probably go to my grave. That's a big question. Out. Big question. Yeah. 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 All right. All right. All right. So Randy's Act One ends with you leaving the Guess Who when the band is still on a rocket ship ride. Um, you know, uh, as explained in the movie, you know, the obvious answer is lifestyle choices. Um, you know, the film makes that plain. But but I, I want to delve a little into your conversion to Latter-day Saints, or they've recently changed their name from Mormons, so everybody knows. And, and I ask this question because I grew up as a Mormon, uh, and I, I left the church when I was about 12. Um, we know your pri- primary motivation was love, uh, and uh, but I, w- I want to know what you took away from your experience in that uniquely American style of Christianity. It was a great club to belong to. Clubs are a good uh, as way to far, play. Yeah, as far as uh, raising a family. Yeah. Uh, it's family-oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it saved my life. Um, I was not a drinker or drugger or smoker at the time. Even before uh, becoming a, a, a Mormon, right. which is the right. expectation when you become one. And I meet, the, I meet this absolutely gorgeous woman who is a mix between Sophia Loren and Gina Lollabridge, who were like hot stuff at the time. <laughs> this, is, this is like the mid-60s. Yeah, yeah. And I meet a woman that looks like that, and she's beautiful, and she, she likes me, and she says, uh, do you drink and smoke? And I say no, and then... And then I'm, a little while later, we're talking marriage. She said, would you join my church so we can go together? I say, sure, no big deal. I was floating around. My mother was Catholic. My dad was Lutheran. I went to all the catechism stuff. To me, it was all the same. It was a good club. I went to Boy Scouts, you know what I mean, and stuff that you do at church. It was not a big deal. Um, so I joined the Mormon church, and I believe it kept me alive because um, I got tired of saying to people, I don't drink, I don't smoke. And they would say, well, try this, man. It's yeah. really cool. Like, don't be a dad. Now you That's had a reason that people would go, oh, I get exactly. it. <laughs> so it's like saying, look, leave me alone, man. I'm in AA, right? I'm in my third week. I just got my cake, my cupcake. They leave me alone. I say, leave me alone. It's religious. So they'd, they'd stop bothering me. And so it, I believe it saved my life because I've been to, uh, a, you know, through a couple of divorces and, and shakeups in my life. You end up spending some time with a counselor, if you want to call them a, psych, a psychic, 
it's like a, a psychiatrist a psycho, or a, uh, <laughs> yeah. head shrinker. Right, right, right. Yeah, shrink. And they always they say the same thing to me. If you had done, if you had drank or done drugs, you would be dead because you are compulsive. You get bent on something and you stay at it and you stay at it and you stay at it and you stay at it. And uh, so stay at music because you're good at that and you'll be successful. But if you had been drinking, you would be dead now. If you did drugs, you'd be dead now. Or if you did crime, you'd be in, in for life. You know what I mean? Or you'd be under the ground. So I believe it, it was a, um, a lifesaver for me. And then it kind of petered out. My son Tal really got into it. Uh, as you travel the world, you see the, uh, the, I don't know, hypocrisy in most religions. Like going way, way back to like, you know, the, uh, the Crusades. Like, we, we are the correct church. Join us and be our buddies. And if not, we're, we're going to kill you. Right? Yeah, we're going to cut off your heads and kill you. And I figured that's not the way it should no. be. Or I would go through Europe or even in Mexico. And you go into these churches, and the guys are regolding the roof with gold leaf. And outside the gates of the church are beggars with no hands and no legs with leprosy begging. And the, the church guys are chasing them away from begging from the tourists. And then, this is not what Christianity is. I felt that when I left the church, and tell us we became spiritual because nobody was telling us what to do. It was in us. I believe everybody has the spirituality in them that when you're walking on a beautiful day and you're looking at the ocean or in a forest or looking at your, your, your child, your baby child, there is some incredible, wonderful force out there and you embrace that and somebody shouldn't tell you what to do and how much of your money you should give them for telling you what to do and all that stuff. So it was a great freedom. So you accept the spirituality and reject the dogma. Yeah, I don't like the, um, I don't like a lot of the stuff that you, now because of the internet, it's pretty hard to pull the wool over people's eyes, which most religion has done. Yeah. For to years, keep you in the club. Right, right, right. Yeah, right. to keep you in the club and keep getting your money. Right. And it's all, it's all guilt-based. If you don't pay them their money, man, you're guilty. You're not going to go to the, the, you know, you're not going to end up at the, you know what I mean? The office picnic at the end of the summer, yeah. which is called heaven or the celestial kingdom or whatever. I think we're in the kingdom right now. <laughs> you, you mentioned that, you know, that 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 yeah, a club. I, I think that's a, 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 a great uh, metaphor to, to use uh, in, in all of this. In, in that, look, you know, there's nothing wrong with community and and, you know, shared ideals and uh, shared interests. Um, it's just when it crosses the line of like now everybody has to have those exact same interests and values and so on and so forth. Where 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 I, I, I'm not sure if that is a requirement for spirituality. I think you believe the same thing, Randy. I do. And then I found a, a great thing when I left. The shunning that happens, and you figured what last month you were my brother, you were my sister, and now you won't talk to me. Yeah, yeah. Like that. That's really that really lays it out like when they always say when you get divorced you really find out what the other partner was in it for was it love or was it money right and you usually it's money <laughs> <laughs> excuse me the love, the love fades away and the money never does <laughs> right right that never does um uh john uh, neil young states and I, and I quote randy had an expanded mind from the beginning what do you think he meant by that? And and what did you learn about Randy and his expanded mind making this film? Well, the 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 statement is in is in reference to um, the the ethos at the time in the nineteen sixties of heavy drug use in in music 
Um, the, you know, it's it's right smack in the middle of of discussion about you know Randy staying clean when everybody else was was high and drunk, basically, and uh, and that's the, the way that Neil answers questions. Basically, um, it, it's for him. It's a really simple answer. Um, yeah, there was no drugs for Randy because. Randy had an expanded mind from the beginning. <laughs> um, it sounded you know, to me like Aunt Randy was always out there. He didn't need drugs. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I, 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 I wasn't there, but um, I, I do, I, I do believe that he, you know, he had it. The the thing that everybody looks for, whether it be escape or or higher meaning or connection or whatever, I I think it's there when he picks up the guitar already so why would he why would he wreck himself for it right yeah now randy did did you ever experiment with drugs no never never at i've all. never no i was allergic to smoke uh-huh so i never smoked and that's kind of the gateway if you smoke you're yeah you're gonna yeah. try smoking yeah. grass or something yeah never did that uh i drank a little bit with burton cummings and the guess who i made a fool of myself at the uh a guess who party when chad allen was leaving and burton cummings was joining and I drank some vodka with Burton. I went outside and drove over my own foot with a car, <laughs> which is a very amazing thing to do. And, uh, but everybody in Winnipeg's done in, that. In Winnipeg. <laughs> I was, and not, in, not in California, but sure, in Winnipeg, I could see that, yes. <laughs> so the car, the left wheel of the car is on my foot, and I'm half sitting in the car, and my left leg is out under the wheel of the car. Yeah. And I'm honking the horn because I'm backing up over my foot, and one, one, my other foot's on the brake. And the person who hears the horn... And comes out of the house, out of the party, is my father. And so he pulls me out of the car, and he puts it into park, and he throws me in the snowbank, and he says, uh, you're a drunk, I'm ashamed to call you my son. And I never drank from that day forward, and that was way before I joined the church. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you didn't join the church until the so mid I didn't experience one thing. I'd go to a party, and I'd see guys. Uh, I had a great, a, a good girlfriend in Vancouver. We went to a party. Somebody put something in her drink. I don't know what it was. I assume it was LSD. She had a conniption and a fit. She was, uh, they called the emergency services. She went into a coma. She died a week later, and that's why I wrote She's Come Undone for that for that girl. Oh I'd go God. to other parties. Guys would take acid. They'd open the window and jump out of a third-story window saying, I can fly, and they'd land on a car, a phone booth, and break their back or their neck. And I figured, I don't want, this is insane. I don't want to do this, so I never did it. Right, right, right. Well, it sounds like you didn't need to. You know, I, 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 like you, I read a ton of these rock and roll books, and there's a couple of takeaways that I almost always find, and that is, A, number one, there was no other plan. It, there is no plan B. Uh, it is just this, this or die. Uh, B, that uh, most musicians are somewhere are nerds in some way, shape, or form. Yep. And uh, and it sounds like you know you you've hit uh, you've hit both of those uh, in in spades. Uh, okay, so Act Two is is Brave Belt in into BTO uh, again. Again, Chad Allen is brought in to uh, follow uh, the country rock muse that was happening at the at the time. Um, and I think Randy, I think you kind of had a discussion with Neil Young at the time, and Neil will say, try to do something completely different than what you were doing uh, with um, with the Guess Who at the time. And so, you know, that country rock thing seemed to be where where things were going. Um, but the, the that morphs very quickly because I think I think Brave Belt lasts about a year, uh, and then it morphs into this 
raw rock and roadhouse, one of the greatest raw rock and roadhouse bands ever, Bachman Turner Overdrive, and Chad Allen kind of falls out, and Fred Turner's in, and I and I find it interesting, and and you know, I, uh, and John, this this is something I grabbed from your film was that both acts seem to require a unique voice to complement Randy's guitar. You know, Burton Cummings, one of the greatest emotional tenors and technically perfect lead vocalists uh, in rock and roll, and then Fred Turner, who's like a lumberjack with a big, giant, deep baritone growl to match. Is is that a fair con- comparison? Yeah, I always look... Oh, go ahead, John. Sorry, yeah, no, I, yeah, and in both cases, it was sort of Randy realizing I need something to go with this, right? Like he's holding his guitar and going, "What, what goes with this? What's the thing I need to take this over?" And he did it twice. <laughs> that, that was kind of the main impetus for making the movie in the first place, right? Like, who does that twice? Yeah, yeah, but it requires. <laughs> so, so Randy, you you probably recognize in yourself that. You know, you're a, a good singer, but you're not, you wouldn't consider yourself a great singer. So you needed that special, crazy, different sound that would just blast out of the speakers. Is is, is that fair? Yeah, I, I my main focus was being a songwriter, writing all different kinds of songs. Yeah, yeah. And I would write songs that I couldn't sing, that like were operatic. In I mean, keys, these eyes. Keys like, that you, you weren't able to hit, right. Right. You listen to these eyes; it's amazing. The average person can't sing it. Burton Cummings sang it; he was 18. That's like an operatic song. It's like an Elton John song that sounds easy to sing, but it's about four octaves. Right. And you got to hit every note perfectly. So Burton Cummings was the perfect voice for that. And then when I didn't have him, I didn't want to be find a voice like his. I didn't want to be a second-rate guess who because when a guy hits number one, everybody knows his voice. So I did the whole country rock thing. I thought I would take over from when the, where the Buffalo Springfield left off when they broke up. Right, it didn't happen. Right, right. Or Poco, they were all breaking up, and Eagles were just getting started. And I, I did start with Chad Allen again, and he quit again, so he quit on me twice. <laughs> yes, and, he did, uh, did he? We had four guys in the band, and we had a booking at Thunder Bay at the um, university there was the end of a basketball season. They want us to come and play in the cafeteria. And we were called Bray Belt, and we had, like, country rock music. Chad Allen that weekend said he was quitting the band and we needed to go play this gig. We were starving. So me and my brother Robbie and Fred Turner, as three guys, go to play this gig in the cafeteria for all the kids after the end of the basketball game. So there's pizza and beer there and they all want to dance. We show up and we play this weird country music and Fred says, look, I'll play bass. Because, I mean, we all would switch around playing bass and then when Chad Allen was gone, we were guitar, bass, and drums. So we play the first night and we get fired because nobody's dancing and all the kids are complaining. Right. This is a Friday night. The guy says, look, I can't even pay you your $400. you got to drive home. And this is from Thunder Bay to Winnipeg. It's a good, I don't know, 250, 300 miles. And so he said, come back in the morning and get your gear. So we come back Saturday morning about 11 o'clock, and he says, look at guys, I can't get another band for tonight. I'm sure you could play other music other than your Brave Belt stuff. <laughs> and you just play stuff that kids can dance to. Make a set list. If you can do it, I'll pay you for last night and tonight. But I can't get another band at the big final tonight. It's finales on basketball. So everyone's going to be in here celebrating. So I sit down with Fred and say, okay, let's do a set list. What did you sing in your other band? House of the Rising Sun. Proud Mary. Great. I could sing Long Time Running, like, you know, from David Crosby's album. I could sing a Bob Dylan. 
I could sing uh, Dean, Neil Young's Down by the River. So I pick out a few songs I could sing. Fred is doing the major of the singing, doing like Eric Burden and John Fogarty, Creative Clearwater stuff, uh, Jumping Jack Flash, uh, you know, Brown Sugar, stuff to get the kids dancing. And we get through that night. And that night we became back to Turner Overdrive. We switched from the country rock to playing dance, rock, pop music. I, I cranked up my guitar because there was only three of us. I'm doing all the guitar rhythm and leads. And we turn into a power trio and we become Blackman Turner. We, we, we become Blackman Turner because uh, Chad Allen is gone. And we find a trucker's magazine called Overdrive. We add that to our name and boom, we explode with a new kind of music. Yeah. New for me, new for Fred. Uh, out of desperation of to earn $400 to get a gig to the money to drive home. And after that, we got a record deal and, and, and the movie continues. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So you've made it to the top in two completely different bands, sounding nothing like the other. Uh, what do you tell young musicians trying to get out of a town like Winnipeg and get to the top of the charts? Well, first of all, you've got to honor your gift. And if your gift is singing or playing drums or piano or guitar, honor that and don't destroy that with, with drugs and alcohol. Like stay straight. Uh, and, this is a job. Uh, this is this is this is a job. It, treat it like you would your job. Nobody goes to their job high. Uh, right. You know, you you you've got to put in the time and effort and treat it as a professional. Right. Yeah. Practice, practice, practice. Don't just be on time. Be a little bit early. Don't leave on time. Stay a little bit late. Show your boss that you give a damn and that you care and you're happy to be there. I tell everybody that in any profession they're in. And guess what? And there is no plan B. Keep doing plan A. Honor your gift, whether shooting hoops or, or, or throwing footballs, you know, touchdowns or playing guitar or whatever. Honor that gift that you've been given and keep doing it with honor and practice. And you will outlive the other guy because he will give up and you won't. And the will to succeed will succeed. And when your break comes, you are ready because you've already passed your tipping point. You've hit your ten or 12,000 hours of playing guitar or drums or singing or acting or dancing, whatever you're doing. And when your break comes, you are ready for it. You didn't win American Idol overnight, and then the next day you don't know what to do because you sang one song right. You've got 10 or 12 years of practicing and playing on stage and being booed and being shooed and being bullied by everybody in school who are now paying money to come in and see you play and coming backstage go, remember me in grade 12? And I go, yeah, you're the guy that kept pushing me down, you know, tripping me over and stuff. They all pay to come and see you later. So there, there's a payoff down yeah. the line. So train, train for a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, train for, uh, train for your life. Yeah. Get up every day and yeah. practice. I mean, I play guitar one or two hours every day, whether I have a gig or not, since I was like 14, so I discovered Elvis. Even that today, even today, you get up and, and play guitar every Yeah, I don't day. have one with me in my hotel room, but when I go for a walk tonight, I'll go to Rudy's on 48th and ask to try out a guitar and play it for half an hour or so. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Dedicated. Dedication. Dedication and preparation uh, and put in those 10,000 hours for the day when that door opens, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So what do you think is the difference between these two mountains in your life? You know, the guess who and BTO? Well, I think they're very similar. Uh, it's just me following a passion with a band with a bunch of guys. 
Um, basically, I was the leader of both of those bands yep. because I was straight and I do I did understand business and I did handle the money and the and the bookings a lot of time when everyone else was partying I wasn't I just didn't go because I knew I had to take the one dollar bills that people paid that night to see us I had them in a brown paper bag I count them up and go to the bank the next morning and do the bank deposit so the money would go home to pay our bills that I was paying because nobody else cared about the money or anything they were just like on a gigantic vacation. For me, it was a business. I looked after the money, and I, I did the bookings. I called the agent. I called the record labels, and I got everything together. I have a little meeting with them every day. Say, this is what happened. This is where we're going. I just keep things going and rolling. So, John, um, it, it, it seems the, the first two parts of the film are self-contained elements that are easy for an audience to understand, especially fans of the, the two bands and of Randy. What I might ask is similar to, to what, what we just talked about with Randy. You know, wh what did you want people to learn about Randy in those first two acts? Well, I mean, I, I, I think I wanted them to see that it wasn't all cut and dry. Um, that, the, that the stuff that happened to him is deeply personal. Um, even the business stuff is deeply personal. Um, and and uh, for me, it was interesting that in both cases, he sort of started out of Winnipeg. Um, so, I mean, we talked before about how he kind yeah, of did it You, you came back to Winnipeg uh, uh, after the Guess Who, after you left the Guess Who. Uh, and uh, you, Randy, you kind of... You know, even though you were shunned uh, by most of the musicians because, you know, yeah. uh, the under the <laughs> a misunderstanding, I I I would say, um, you just plowed through and, and did it again. Yeah, from here, from from Winnipeg, yeah, um, which, which is un unusual. No, it, much know? easier, Randy. You should have gone to L.A. or New York. It would have been much easier. <laughs> well, I I had those offers. Believe me, to go to Nashville, to go to L.A., to go to New York. Um, uh, I don't know why. I mean, my family was there. My friends were there. I had nothing else. I mean, when everyone kind of shuns you, um, you kind of got your family and uh, maybe one or two friends from high school. But the media and the business is basically won't work with you. And that I became very independent. I produced BTO on my own. I published the music. Nobody would do it. I led the band. Uh, I kind of did everything. It was like a one-man do-it-yourself kind of thing. And then when I needed help, uh, we left Winnipeg. We went to Vancouver. I asked Bruce Allen, who was only a booking agent, yeah. if he would come and pretend he would be my manager because I had an offer to sign with Mercury Records if I had a manager. So I said, of course I have a manager. So I go up to Bruce and say, Bruce, I'll fly you to Chicago. Come in and pretend you're my manager. Because I almost got a record deal with Charlie Thatcher, Mercury Records. This is for Brave Belt 3 or BTO1. So Bruce says, okay, he comes in. He says, what does the manager do? I said, you act confident. You scream and yell. Uh, <laughs> you, you, get, you get what needs to be done. So he comes and he does it, and we get the deal. So on the way home, I said, congratulations, Bruce. You're a manager. And he goes, thanks. And I say, I mean, really, you're our manager. We're going on the road. Come on the road, and I'll teach you everything. So he came on the road literally for two and a half, three years. All those, when you see that documentary, when we did 300 gigs a year, guess who was driving the car? Bruce Allen. Wow. He drove the car. He drove yeah. the station wagon. We had another guy driving a truck with gear. Bruce and I took turns driving. We roomed together for like two and a half years. We'd sit in the room at night and dark, in the dark, and he'd say, well, what happened tonight? What did I do wrong? What did I do right? And I would say, well, the guy charges 300 bucks for a carrot and a piece of salami on a plate, so that wasn't really good catering. 
So he said, okay, I won't let that happen again. And the guy sold 200 T-shirts. We didn't get anything. Okay, I won't let that happen again. And from that, he became a really good manager, and he learned the business. And then he took on Loverboy and then Brian Adams. And yeah, he's now, now he's a legend himself, right? He's a legend himself, and he's got Buble and, uh, and Jan Arden, and he's still got Brian Adams, who's literally Canada's Bruce Springsteen. I mean, Brian is an unstoppable, wonderful creative force and has been for like, I don't know, four or five decades. He's amazing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So the second act ends in a, about 1977 when you leave uh, Bachman Turner Overdrive. And, and more so than leaving the Guess Who, you hit an even deeper bottom. I do. Does it, it? No, it's that's that's what it seemed to come across from from the film that uh, uh, you. Uh, I think you bought a big house, and then yeah, yeah. then things didn't work out. You couldn't. You you, you 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 you. I think you lost a lot of money, and then uh, you had to try to work your way back, right? Yeah, I I went through a divorce uh, with the um, with the Mormon lady, mm -hmm. and. Um, she wanted to move to Salt Lake City, and I didn't. You know, you know that whole trip, right? Right. And, uh, Provo it was and all that. Yeah. It was yeah. a very, very down period. Um, I did have Iron Horse. I mean, I had my own studio. I went into the studio, buried myself in Iron Horse. I did get a, some really nice um, friends from the Beach Boys, from Carl Wilson, Brian Wilson, Mike Love. They asked me to tour with them. I got to be part of their family. Iron Horse opened for them a lot. I started to write songs with Carl Wilson. Uh, they recorded my songs and keep the summer alive. Carl Colby asked me to come to uh, LA and produce it and even tour with the Beach Boys, be part of the Beach Boys because Brian was doing his thing with Eugene Landy at the time and not going on the road. Nice. And I had gotten custody of all my six kids out of the divorce thing. And I just said to Carl, I can't go. I just got my kids and I can't leave on a rock and roll tour because guess what will happen? I'll lose the custody of my kids. Yeah. So I, I turned that down and I stayed there and it was kind of a down period. But also for me, being Mr. Mom was really great. I'm so close. I got so close to my kids. I'm so close to town, Lorelai and Bannatyne and Brigham and my kids today. Who, you know, they live near me or wherever they live. Um, my daughter still lives in Utah, uh, but they're coming up for a whole month in June, and we're all going to see ELO together. We're all going to see Queen together. Nice. And the that rocks together. And she's got five kids, and they all love Queen and ELO. So, um, I. I, I out of that, uh, being Mr. Mom for that period of time and doing their lunch and their dinner and 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 everything else and looking after them, it was really a, a really great bonding thing for me because I had missed many years of that being on the road before that. So this was my bonding time, and uh, I don't regret a day of it. So I wasn't in the Beach Boys. They did my song. I didn't play the solo. Joe Walsh came in and played it. But, you know, you it's a crossroads where you never know where you would have went or what would have happened. Yeah. So it sounds like you're. Do you just always look for the silver lining? There, there is no. You, you, maybe you look back and say, "Oh, yeah, I had some troubles I had to get through," but you don't let that really interfere. You just keep on moving, and you and you find the 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 best in life to make it at the time, right? I do. I mean, I remember refusing to go to Woodstock. <laughs> okay, tell us more. Hey. <laughs> yeah. Well. We had already done the Seattle Pop Festival, which is three glorious days in the sunshine uh, in Woodenville, Ontario, right? I mean, Woodenville, uh, Washington, right outside of Seattle. Glorious. Every band in the world was there. If you Google Seattle Pop Festival, it was amazing. Uh -huh. And right after that, we went to Chicago to record American Woman in a new studio RCA had built for us because we were tired of driving all the way to New York. We had to record in RCA studios. So they built a studio for us in Chicago. 
So we go there and we're, we're recording the American Woman album. And I get a call, but I see on the news what a disaster Woodstock is. It's raining, there's a traffic jam, there's not enough food, there's not enough toilets, there's not enough anything there. And I get a call, do you want to come and play Woodstock? And I say, well, we're in the studio, we've only got like two weeks to do this album, then we're on the road again. I see it's a disaster, you see it on the news, and that's why it was filmed, it was a disaster. Nobody filmed the Seattle podcast, it was perfect, like a perfect vacation. Yeah, there was no news, uh, yeah, there, there was right. no news of the day, right? So I said, no, we're not going to do Woodstock, and then consequently, Joni Mitchell didn't do it, she stayed in her hotel room with Elliot Roberts, right, right. So Nash went and did it, and, and, but she wrote Woodstock as if she was there. And so a lot of people chose not to do it because it was the disaster. But if I had gone and done Woodstock, I don't know if we would have played, if we would have been rained out. But when we stayed in the studio, magic happened and we recorded the American Woman single and album. And that was like number one all over the world in all three trades. And that was like another crossroads where you, you got to find it. We didn't play Woodstock, but like but you got, got American Woman out of it. Right. Yeah. yeah. And we did play Seattle Pop and that was good enough. We played a lot of other pop festivals. Uh, this was Led Zeppelin's first time. So we're touring with Zeppelin and Sly, the Family Stone and Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and Jerry Lee Lewis. It was amazing. And Janis Joplin and the Birds. It was an amazing time. And so we did enough of those pop festivals. Like, but like I said, Woodstock got captured in film because it was a disaster. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, we we talk about that in our shows that, uh, uh, you know, the 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 eventuality of Altamont was written in the uh, the seeds yeah. of of Woodstock, uh, and that yeah. that there was a lot of luck that it wasn't as as horrible as it could have easily have gotten to. So I, uh, right. you, you made a good choice. Uh, so, um, uh, John, besides our looming subject, who was your favorite to interview? And, and who do you think understands Randy the best other than his family? Oh, man, that's a tough one. Um, I, I loved uh, Fred. Um, uh, Fred, Fred. Fred's great because he's at this sort of happy, buoyant place. Yeah. Um, I'm sure, you know, in the interview, I'm not sure if it's in the movie, but in the interview, Fred said, yeah, this is it. I'm retiring. Uh, this is going to be the last show with Randy. And then two months later, he's back playing with Randy again. The Tal interview that's in the movie, uh, I interviewed Tal for three and a half hours. Um, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot more there. And it was, it, 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 it formed my roadmap for, for 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 everything I'd say in the last fifty years in a lot of ways. Um, even though he was only two when a lot of it happened, um, so I, that was that was great. Um, and then, uh, but then when I interviewed Lorelai, which was almost the last one, that was that was sort of the most personal and emotional one. And. Um, and for me, I, I mean, that was the connection to the material that I'd been looking for for the most um, out of everyone. So that so that was that was special, too. And when you see the movie, I think you could see how each of these those pieces kind of fit into place for me. You know, of, of course, uh, you know, when I w w walked into the room and shook hands with Frampton, I was a little bit starstruck. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, but but then, for instance, uh, I found out that the very first concert I ever went to, which was the David Bowie Glass Spider uh, oh, tour, that, that uh, Peter, Peter <laughs> plays guitar on, yeah, 
1987 in Winnipeg mm-hmm. at the Winnipeg Stadium. I yeah. went. I went. I was 10 years old, <laughs> and uh, and Peter was the guitarist at the first concert, and, and we made the connection right there in the interview. Yeah. So that was that was amazing, <laughs> um, and um, and uh, you know I I met I met this guitarist um, named Alan Darby, who's a friend yep. of of, Ran- of Randy's. Um, so he's kind of a legend, actually. Um, he's invited us, welcomed us into his home in London, this spectacular, beautiful place with amplifiers laying around in the kitchen. Um, and I, I was—I mean, I, I didn't know who he was before, and and he's a genius, like a guitar genius. Um, you know, so there's all. I know I'm diverting a little bit here, but when you when you do these things, there's all these places that you get to go to um, that you don't. The life doesn't normally take you, um, and that's why I like doing these things. That's why I like making these movies, um, because it, it in a lot of ways like a time traveler or someone who has special access to different dimensions. I'm just given the key to to all these things that life would never take you to. Um, and that, that blows my mind. That's, uh, who needs drugs when you have that? <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. I, you know, I, I found it interesting. You mentioned Lorelai, uh, because, you know, she kind of shows up in this moment between that second and third act. She almost kind of starts the third act and she mentioned something that I, I want to throw at you, Randy, and that's, that's your survivalist streak. Um, how did that come about? Cause it sounds like that's a, that's a really a deep seated thing for you. What do you mean, my surviving streak? Your survivalist streak that uh, she points out in the movie that you've always had this thing and that, you know, that uh, that the kids needed to be ready. They needed uh, their little backpacks oh, and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you were a Mormon, you know about food stores. Yeah. Okay, so I was in uh, the earthquake in L.A. They, they do call it the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which means we must be near the end of something. Yes. <laughs> it means near the end of your membership in the church, whatever. <laughs> uh, no, I was always aware of, and this is, goes back to the '80s when there was this threat of Russia, and uh, and I was in a, a there was L.A. earthquake, um, and um, I was in 911. Uh, I was in New York when 911 happened, and you try to go to a store, there's no food in there the next day. Yeah. So I've always had um, a food storage. Uh, for six or eight people, freeze-dried or canned or preserved in my garage, that when the stores are are empty, I've got food and water for me and my kids. And then to protect your food, because, of course, there's going to be gangs. And my dad told me this in the, um, in the, uh, the Depression. Gangs, a man would actually walk through the countryside and go to a farmer's field and take corn and potatoes, and you couldn't stop them because they were feeding their family. Right. And they... They would beat up guys and just to get food. So it's almost like a uh, an apocalypse movie. But I was always a survivalist, and I always had a food storage and water. And then, of course, you, of course, you need guns to protect that, your food storage and all that kind of stuff. And uh, um, I was really into all that stuff. I still am because uh, I live in Victoria now. But we had a snowstorm before Christmas. The power went out for two for eight days. Eight I had days. no heat. Wow. I had no heat. Uh, my my gate couldn't open. Nobody could come down my driveway. There was a lot of snow, and I'm I'm on a 
a sloping driveway towards the water. Mm -hmm. And so I'm in my house for eight days. I can't leave my yard. And you end up eating peanut butter and for eight days or something and almonds or something. So <laughs> it really brings home, yeah, I should have food. And I'm not going to survive eating sunflower seeds for a year if all the stores close. Uh, so I've got to get, you know, make a list of what you want, chicken noodle soup or tuna, or you freeze dry food and uh, you have water. And I, I believe everybody should have that because you look at the floods and the, uh, the, the storms and the fires that we're having now. When the truckers can't move food at night, there's no food in the stores. The stores will be empty literally in 48 hours. And I've seen it happen. Yeah, uh, yeah, we live in a just-in-time uh, delivery uh, world, yeah. and uh, it, it, you know, it does. It, a lot of people don't understand that uh, just a, a little bit of loss of civilization, uh, and the whole thing begins to collapse in on itself. Right? It becomes Lord of the Flies. Yeah, you look at L.A. when something happened, um, the 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 L.A. riots. Guys were driving cars and trucks through windows into into Ralphs and throwing food in the back and driving out. They got to feed their family. It becomes survivalist. There's no police anymore. There's no fire. There's no emergency. All it is is surviving. Yeah. I, I think that also fits into just you, you musically as well. You just you yeah. just continually survive, uh, and you have since the early to mid-60s. That's what I thought you meant at first when you said my daughter mentioned my survival. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I, do survive. I do survive in music and in the music business, and... Personally, um, like whatever goes down, uh, it's the Gloria Gaynor. I will survive. I will survive. Right, right. So what I took away is that the third act is is not a sudden rise and loss of height and fame and fortunes, but a long, steady third act filled with a lot of small victories. Uh, and let's face it, the full story hasn't been completely written yet. Is that fair to say? Yes, I'm in the middle of a new story right now. Last week, I led the band, uh, which was uh, Danny Serafin from Chicago, the drummer, uh, the bass player from uh, Living Color, uh, a bunch of other great musicians. And I did the closing song for the Prince documentary that, um, that I wrote. And uh, she's on tour right now, but Shaka Khan's going to come back and be singing on it. Uh, they're mentioning Stevie Wonder. John Mayer's going to be playing on it. And this is for the closing credits of the Prince doc. And it's the beginning of a whole new thing for me in L.A. I've got a new deal. Uh, I'm going to be writing for soundtracks. I'm still Skinner to ask us to do some more dates with them. I'm doing a couple of dates with Frampton. He's on his last tour this summer. And so I might be doing a couple of songs with him at the LA Forum, which is already sold out. And uh, I'm still rocking in the free world. I'm telling you, it's great. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. You, it's like you, you kind of get to do whatever it is you want to do these days. Yes. It's, it's very nice. I've got a new, uh, love in my life, a new woman, and that's really good. Uh, my kids are surrounding me. I moved to Victoria, which has got to be the nicest place and the best weather in Canada every day of the year, every climate of the, uh, that's coming around in, in circles. And my music's really good. My band is fantastic. Uh, everything is really, really, really good. So, John, what, what is your final takeaway of the great Canadian musician, Randy Bachman? Well, I, I think... And I guess we've kind of been leading into this, but it just seems to me that the story's not over and it, it's never ending. Um, and that if someone wants to uh, come along and do another movie, uh, you, you know, there'll probably be more material for them because it seems like every two years there's like a, a whole new thing that emerges in his life. 
So <laughs> yeah, and we we just touched on on you know the the big highlights. I mean, you know, as a lot of people know, uh, Rainy, I believe you still have your radio show, uh, uh, Vinyl Tap, right? Yeah, I just met with CBC a few months ago, and I'm in my 14th year, and they said I could do it forever. <laughs> it's the top top rated, <laughs> the top rated show for since it started, and I love doing it. I have a lot of tap heads all over the world who um, communicate with me all the time with show ideas because every show has a theme. And I just I love doing it. I, I I'm going home from here to do eight shows in four day in two days, and then those get you know uh, farmed out over the next couple of months, and uh, then I'm on tour. I've got a lot of gigs. I've got a gig with Burton Cummings coming up. It's going to be amazing. Oh, I'd love to see that. Uh, I, I I'll keep an eye on the tour schedule here. So, John, more music documentaries on the horizon? Yeah, yeah. I hope there are. Um, yeah, his next one's called Backman Two, <laughs> or the director's cut. That's what I want to yeah, say. I want to see the director's cut. Right, right. He's right. already worked it out. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I hope I hope there's more. I I, I really like this. Um, uh, in the in the post kind of dealings with with distributors and 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 things. Um, what one distributor I talked to said, you know, what's great about these movies and what we like about them is that they're sort of evergreen. You know, yeah. the political political stuff, it comes and goes with the issues and with the, the currents of people's minds. Um, but, you know, the music stuff, it, it's eternal. People always want to know about this, especially when it's just, there's a big historical component. You know, people are always going to be curious. Um, so it stays on the sh- shelf. It stays fresh a lot longer. And and I, I hope I hope this has a long, long, long shelf life that people can enjoy it for a long time. I, I think I think it will. And to your point, uh, you know, these things are evergreen. Uh, and, you know, let's face it, um, you know, we're all talking about a, a, a subject that's very near and dear to our hearts, all three of us here. Uh, and I think we all recognize that, you know, th- th- this was kind of a special moment in art history. I, I liken it to the to the Italian Renaissance. I, I think the further we get away from this moment, I think the music of the latter half of the 20th century, we call it we call it rock and roll but it's you know all kinds of things um it just it showed up at this unique moment uh the technology was there to turn it into the first real-time global art phenomenon and you know randy you 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 know you got to ride that wave from almost the very beginning to to today so that's so i, I gotta ask you first of all what was it like the first time you saw the final film when i saw it yeah uh, it was at the Indie Doc Fest in uh, in uh, Toronto. Yes, Hot Docs, yeah. Tal and Lorelai were there, and um, uh, a pretty good audience there. And it was at the, the like at the Indie Doc Fest, and it was kind of I was kind of stunned by the whole thing. Um, it's like somebody saying to you, Christian, that uh, we've gathered all your family home movies of all your vacations when you were a little kid, and when you fell out of the tree or you were fishing and you know what I mean? All that kind of stuff. And they put it all together and everybody looks at it and claps. It's like weird. It's, it's strange. This is your life. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, like the old television show. Uh, yeah. Sort of, yeah ex, ex, except, you know, on, on, on a grand scale, uh, you know, well, you know, my home movies don't include Madison Square Garden. Oh, well. <laughs> at least not well, yet. No, it, it's quite a because uh, because I'm a, I'm a go forward person. I don't really I don't yeah. really sit here yeah. and say I remember the days. Uh, forget about those days. I mean, so this reminded me of those days. I'm always looking 
to tomorrow next week. I mean, I'm like I'm booked already into next September. I mean, I'm taking gigs already. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. that's uh, that, that's your future is well. Uh, yeah. you know, a, 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 as any good artist understands early on, is that you have to keep producing because if you don't, you don't eat. Right. So I've got a new album in the works. I got a couple of tours. I got a couple of corporate gigs. I'm working on three movies. I'm working on a stage play. I'm working. Busy as always. Busy as always. Uh, do you think John got you? Yeah, I wish I wish it could have been longer because, like he said, he talked to Tal for three hours and Neil Young. I think there should be a, another bootleg version maybe on the, the 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 internet or something where you can get all the outtakes or something. I don't know. Oh, the Criterion I, I, the I, Criterion Collection, John. Right? Uh, yes, maybe, yes. All yes. of the outtakes, the special disc of uh, you know the uh, the uh, commentary. Uh, you know, you play the movie and then you know you just talk about the movie behind the movie. Behind the movie, behind the movie. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe one day we can get that uh, that for yeah. you. For you. <laughs> well, Randy Backman and John uh, Bernard, thanks so much for coming on Deeper Digs and Rock with us today. Thanks, it's been great. Thank you a lot. Thank you, Christian. Taking care of business. Oh, come on. You knew I was going to do that somewhere. Always a pleasure talking to Randy Backman and adding John Bernard got us all some new insights. Thank you, Randy and John. You know, we are in interesting times for rock and roll. Um, on the one hand, there's a lot of live stuff to see, uh, probably because the royalty checks aren't uh, what they used to be, so everyone's got to go out on the road. And it sure seems like there is renewed interest in the art form culturally in a weird way. Like Western movies when I was growing up, more myth-making and less real. But as a thriving art form, eh, it's way behind us. Is someone going to write another American woman, another you ain't seen nothing yet? No, no, it's not going to happen. Uh, as I've said before, the electric guitar, which was at the forefront of this music, is uniquely an industrial instrument. Uh, cranked up, it even sounds like the industrial age. Well, we don't live in that age anymore. It's all memories now. And like the Western film, um, which is still popular in many circles, rock and roll is fading into mythology. I think we can see why there is interest and certainly why people pine for the days of yore when this music drove the culture and became a global phenomenon. So now everyone, who was anyone, is jockeying for position uh, in the history books that are being written and those that will be written. 
uh, Randy is and his kind uh, are the Billy the Kids, the Jesse James, or the myriad of real and fictional characters that John Wayne or Clint Eastwood played. Without doubt, there's still a huge appetite. One only needs to look at the success of Bohemian Rhapsody, the new Motley Crue movie, or even this documentary to see the desire for an age past. I, for one, am grateful for it, and I, I bet you are as well. That's why I'm doing this podcast, and I bet that's why most of you listen. Okay, make sure you tune in and catch John's documentary, Backman, streaming just about everywhere right now. Until next week, I'm Christian Swain, the rock and roll archaeologist, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock. You know what to do. Keep up the rockin'. right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at The RNRAP. 
We are on Instagram at R&R Archaeology. Tweet us at R&R Archaeology. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.